0: In Genesis, uh, the first book of the Bible uh, is a famous story about Jacob wrestling with an angel on the bank of the river Yabok. Do you know the story? It occurs in the midst of a series of stories about deceptions and betrayals. Jacob has cheated his brother Esau out of his, out of his inheritance. Jacob's father-in-law, Laban, has deceived Jacob into marrying a woman he doesn't love and forced him into years of servitude. Jacob and his favorite wife Rachel steal from Laban and lie to him and flee. It's all very human. We hurt and betray people. Sometimes the people closest to us and they hurt us. We suffer from jealousy and greed and resentment. We hold grudges. The Bible is full of painful and deeply truthful stories about the likes of all of us. I bet you didn't expect a Zen priest to be preaching about the Bible. (laughs) I don't really fit anybody's stereotype of a Zen priest, but hang on. We'll get to Buddhism and a couple of other religions in a minute. So in the midst of this series of stories about Jacob, he's camping alone one night on the banks of a river. He wants to reconcile with Esau... Um, And he sent a huge caravan of livestock and servants ahead of him, hoping to appease the anger that he expects. He knows he's been a jerk. Seemingly out of nowhere, an angelic being appears and wrestles with Jacob all night long. Jacob holds his own until finally at daybreak, the man wrenches Jacob's hip out of joint and insists that Jacob let him go. Jacob refuses until the man agrees to bless him. As it turns out, The man is God, who does bless him, and gives him a new name, Israel, the one who struggles. Because Jacob struggled with God and with men and prevailed. Simply relieved to have survived a face-to-face encounter with the divine, our protagonist limps away. The blessing doesn't leave him unscathed. Jacob's many descendants, the ancient Israelites, suffered persecution, conquest, and exile over and over again. So the Hebrew Scriptures wrestle repeatedly with questions about the meanings of suffering. Where is divinity to be found in the midst of destruction and injury, betrayal and heartbreak? Different books of the Bible offer different perspectives on this question. Deuteronomy offers a rather different analysis than Ecclesiastes, or Jonah, or Job. One of the things that I admire most about Judaism is that it values the process of wrestling. Instead of jumping to simple explanations or easy answers, there's a willingness to turn questions over and consider them from different angles, and even to leave some questions or debates unresolved. One of the angels uh, with which I have wrestled mightily is forgiveness. A few years ago, I went through a very bitter divorce. Anybody ever had a divorce or a bad breakup? It sucks. Right? It brings out the worst in everybody. Um, At the same time, I was dealing with two deaths in my immediate family and one in my extended family, and it was a lot to grieve all at once. I was really angry about it. One day during that period, I was watching the royal wedding between William and Kate. During the service, Kate's brother read the verses from Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, which you heard this morning. Those words were knives in my heart. My Buddhist name, Kakudo Wako, means something like understanding the way, harmony, and happiness. It's similar to the message of that biblical text. But I was a long way from harmony and happiness at that point. I felt bitter and angry about the ways that I hadn't been treated kindly. And I felt justified in my anger. But more than that, the words hurt because they illuminated so clearly the ways I had not lived up to them. The ways I had been unloving and had repaid evil for evil. What hurt most was my own unforgiveness, my own clenched heart. I could not let go. I couldn't open it to forgive or to receive anything like grace. Around this time, I also watched a television program on forgiveness. It began with the Amish community at Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, where a mentally ill man murdered 10 innocent little girls in their schoolhouse because he was angry at God for the death of his own daughter. After this act of vengeance, he killed himself. The Amish community immediately reached out to the murderer's wife, and many attended the man's funeral. They said they forgave him, which stunned a lot of people. A formerly Amish man interviewed for the program spoke for many when he said he thought forgiveness had been given too easily, that it was cheap grace to forgive such great evil so quickly. We shouldn't rush past it or minimize its enormity, he said. The program also raised questions about the relationship between forgiveness and repentance. Is repentance a necessary precondition for forgiveness? In this case, the murderer could not repent because he killed himself too. Was his own death an expression of remorse or simply an attempt to escape punishment and pain? We'll never know. Is forgiveness really possible when a perpetrator cannot or will not repent? The Jewish High Holy Days occurred last month, and Yom Kippur is all about repentance. Jews aren't supposed to ask God to forgive their sins until after they have made amends to the people they've harmed. In the ancient Jain tradition of India, a major annual observance involves eight days of fasting, meditation, and prayer, culminating in forgiveness day. One asks forgiveness of all beings one has harmed, knowingly and unknowingly. In both Jewish and Jain traditions, horizontal repentance between human beings is absolutely key. In Judaism, it precedes vertical repentance to God. Jainism, like Buddhism, is a non-theistic spiritual path. It doesn't involve beliefs about God, so horizontal repentance is all there is. One confesses in and to and with the community. I don't have a lot of patience with theists who think that all we have to do is repent vertically to God and our job is done. That is cheap grace. It dodges responsibility for cleaning up the messes that we make here on earth. True repentance requires an effort to amend our lives. The Reverend Stephen Smith, an Episcopal priest who wrote a wonderful book called Saving Salvation, The Amazing Evolution of Grace, pointed out to me however, that sometimes people need to be assured of God's forgiveness before they can really face the harm that they've done, forgive themselves, and begin to make necessary changes. I can understand that. Sometimes forgiving ourselves is the hardest thing. But what do we do in cases where someone else has hurt us deeply and cannot or will not repent and make amends? Maybe because they're dead or because they feel perfectly justified or they simply don't care. What do we do then? If our forgiveness is conditioned upon someone else's repentance, we could be carrying unforgiveness for a very long time. And let me tell you, it's a heavy load. In thinking about all of this, I found it helpful to make some distinctions among repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Reconciliation. Repentance gets a bad rap, you know, because sometimes people try to beat us over the head with it, telling us how bad and depraved we are. Repent, sinner, you're going to hell! Or maybe it suggests a sort of self-flagellation, medieval, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, I'm so unworthy. Um, in, in my view, repentance simply means taking responsibility for our stuff. Sometimes I act badly, Uh, I'm impatient, or rude, or mean, or distracted, or oblivious, or driven by some other less than noble motive. Welcome to the human family. Repentance is an important practice in Soto Zen, the form of Buddhism in which I'm ordained. We do it regularly, especially as an act of purification, before we make or renew the ethical vows that are the foundation for our meditation practice. Because we're human and delusion runs deep in us, we fail over and over to live up to these vows. So we repent and renew them over and over. In fact, I would say that Zen training, like most forms of learning, is really the study of failure. Our mistakes and our suffering are the gateways to our spiritual liberation, because the only way out is through. When I can see and accept my own shortcomings, my own delusions, and muster some compassion for my fallibility, it's easier for me to accept the fallibility of others. We all fall down and fail to live up to our best ideals. In Zen, there's a saying, fall down seven times, stand up eight. So repentance, or copying to our stuff, or apology, whichever term you prefer is a very helpful spiritual discipline, especially for those of us who tend towards self-righteousness and judgment. Anybody here ever tend towards self-righteousness and judgment? Yeah, right. A sincere apology doesn't really cost anything but a bit of ego, although I admit, sometimes that does seem a very high price to pay. The practice of apology does not depend upon whether other people accept it or forgive us or reciprocate with their own apologies. It is simply a form of spiritual cultivation for our own growth and deepening. For reconciliation to be possible, repentance is essential. When trust has been broken, repentance has to be there for, for there to be any possibility uh, of rebuilding the relationship. If one person is clearly an innocent victim, or there's a power imbalance involved, then it is the perpetrators or the power holders' responsibility to initiate repentance. If both parties or all parties share some responsibility, then reconciliation requires mutual repentance. The Reverend Smith pointed out to me, however, that if someone has hurt me uh, and remains unrepentant, It is not a good idea to remain in relationship with that person. In fact, it's dangerous because I set myself up, we set ourselves up to be hurt in the same way again. That helped me realize that I had spent much of my life operating out of an assumption that if someone apologized to me and I accepted their apology, I had to keep dealing with that person even if the behavior continued. That was a mistake. That was what Zen people call idiot compassion. I was not taking sufficient care of my own well-being. Jesus said to forgive seven times 70 times, and he forgave the people who tortured and executed him while they were doing it. It's a very impressive example, but it has been used in some unhelpful ways to glorify martyrdom. In general, I don't think martyrdom is a great strategy. It may be necessary at times, but rarely. Yet it is possible to distance oneself from a relationship that is not life-giving without anger and resentment. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is possible. A friend of mine who's Jewish uh, put her understanding this way. If you hurt me and sincerely apologize, then I have an obligation to forgive you and not continue to hold it against you. But that doesn't mean I want to keep dealing with you. And it doesn't mean that if I have some legal claim against you, I won't take you to court. Forgiveness does not mean that we condone hurtful behavior or that we keep exposing ourselves to it or that there are no consequences. So reconciliation requires repentance. Forgiveness does not. Forgiveness is unilateral. It is something that we do in order to heal ourselves and move on. It's when we let go of replaying the story of our grievance over and over and feeding the bitterness that goes with it. As Lily Tallman said, forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. One of the painful realities about forgiveness, however, is that it can take a long time. At the time of the royal wedding, I wasn't ready. A, a friend of mine, the Reverend Jeanette Stokes, wrote to me, If you try to plant zinnia seeds in upstate New York in January, where I was living at the time, you won't get very good results. If they manage to survive till spring, they might take root then, but not very likely. It's not the fault of the ground or the seed. The time is not right. The soil is not ready, even if the seed is a gift. No amount of effort on the part of the soil will allow it to receive the seed and grow the flower while it is still January or February or March or in upstate New York, April or May. (laughs) I guess the soil can only pray for a warming and softening and hope that it doesn't get paved over. Dr. Fred Luskin, who's the director of the Forgiveness Project at Stanford University, is a psychologist who studies the psychological and physiological effects of forgiveness, and he trains people to forgive. He defines it as the ability to live life when things don't go the way we want, and grieving losses without blame." The ability to live life when things don't go the way we want and grieving losses without blame. It's a choice we make. He observes that practicing forgiveness improves our blood pressure, our cardiac health, not to mention our overall happiness. He also points out that big traumas can take years to heal. Leskin identifies four stages to the process. First, we're stuck in our story about how injured we feel and blaming the other person. We're filled with self-justified anger and hurt and are controlled by it. Anybody ever been there? Second, uh, we, we begin to notice that unforgiveness hurts and that our grievance is burdensome. We begin to take steps to heal it. Third, we focus on how good it can feel to let go and begin to cultivate forgiveness as a practice. In the fourth stage, we become a more forgiving person in general by cultivating forgiveness as a habit. We take responsibility for our own emotional reactivity and practice not taking other people's behavior personally. In the book Forgive for Love, Luskin teaches a nine-step method uh, on forgiveness, which I recommend. I particularly like his insight that at the core of a lot of our pain is some unenforceable rule about how we think someone else ought to be. We can hope for it, we can do what we can to encourage it, but we don't control it. A key part of forgiveness is seeing things realistically as they are, accepting that people are who they are, and are likely to go on being who they are. That doesn't mean that we have to lie down like a doormat. It does mean that we'll suffer less if we let go of requiring that people be other than they are, or requiring that they make the choices we want them to make. Once we can do that, we can see the situation clearly and decide how best to meet it, which may involve setting some limits. Shosan Victoria Austin, an American Zen and yoga teacher, recently told me one of the wisest things I have ever heard about the anger that arises when we feel mistreated. She said, the wisdom in anger, the enlightened aspect of anger, is its power to teach us about three things, needs, boundaries, and respect. If we observe our experience of anger carefully, it can reveal to us what needs are going unmet, where boundaries need to be set, and what respect feels like, both as giver and receiver. When we can see those things clearly, without all the emotional charge, we can begin to see how to move forward constructively. Cultivating forgiveness as a practice is a way of stretching and strengthening our hearts. It's a kind of yoga. One way to do this is to say to ourselves during meditation or prayer, I forgive myself for the hurt I have caused to myself and others, knowingly or unknowingly. I ask forgiveness for the harm I have done, knowingly and unknowingly. I offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me, knowingly or unknowingly. What if we did that practice every day? We might not believe our own words at first, but little by little it would get easier. My friend Jeanette insists, however, that we cannot make forgiveness happen. Ultimately, she says, healing and forgiveness happen in places we cannot control with our conscious minds. The good is not in the trying harder. The good is the learning to move with greater ease and relaxation. So if you want to put more effort in, she told me, put it into having more fun, loving yourself, relaxing, and trusting that healing will come and that some sort of forgiveness will take root in your heart much later on which brings me to grace. The more I practice gratitude for the beautiful things in my life, for the people who love me, for the countless blessings I enjoy, moment after moment, the easier it is for me to let go of my grievances. And I'm kind of a crabby person. I have lots of grievances. Um, But the more grateful I can be, the less I want to haul them around, the happier I feel. Gratitude is the antidote to grievance. And there is so much for which to be grateful. Grace is all around us. This community, even the members of it who drive you crazy, is grace. This breath is grace. I know this is an interplay-friendly community. Um, and in interplay, grace is understood to be physical, to be the opposite of stress. Forgiveness brings ease. Forgiveness is grace. Forgiveness could even be compared in some way to enlightenment. In Zen, enlightenment isn't something that we achieve. It appears when we drop whatever stands in the way of seeing that everything is impermanent, including both our happiness and our hurt, and everything is connected. Those who we see as enemies are inseparable from us. We have the same imperfections we criticize in them, and they have the same good qualities that we value in ourselves and our friends. A prayer attributed to St. Francis says, it is in giving that we receive, in pardoning that we are pardoned, in dying that we are born to eternal life. This can only be true when the boundary between giver and receiver, pardoner and pardoned, Martin Luther King, Jr. said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. When we can see this clearly with gratitude, then forgiveness is effortless. We just let go. Grace appears. I'm not suggesting that I've arrived and now I'm done after several years I did receive the grace of forgiving my ex although we're not in contact but delusions about our separateness are inexhaustible so awakening to them and letting them go is an endless process if you're wrestling with an angel on the bank of the Yabbok and it seems very dark hang in there you may see a streak of dawn on the horizon you may yet receive a blessing the struggle probably won't leave you unscathed. You might limp a little afterward. But here's a secret. In wrestling with this problem, you are already blessed. Thank you for the grace and gift of being with you here this morning. Amen.